Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. All right. Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. We are uh, in the second week of a series on communion, on the Eucharist. Uh, and as a church, we're adjusting our liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. Every, even the most charismatic, spontaneous churches, they have a liturgy. I know somebody's going to you know, do this at this time, or there's going to be silence at this time, or there's going to be a spontaneous song at this time. We all have a liturgy. Saints Hill has a liturgy. We have a way that we go about our worship gathering. And we are adjusting our liturgy. And uh, we're adjusting it because we want to make more room and space for communion. Uh, we, we've, if you've been around St. Hill, uh, you know, any length of time, really, if, unless last week was your first week, you notice we have new tables here. You're going to come out of your seats at some point, come down, receive bread, receive wine. We also have juice, if you'd prefer that. And um, we have a, a time in our gathering that is a, a chunk of time, a chunk of our gathering devoted to communion. And so we've been looking at communion with just more purpose. And uh, that's the reason for this series. That's what we're doing. So Luke 22 is where we're going to be. And if you could all stand up for the reading of the scripture. All right, Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They, re- they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 12, he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, lord it over them. 
And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This is the word of the Lord. You can be uh, seated. This table, this wine, this bread says to us two things. The first thing that the table calls to us and says to us is this. Come, eat, drink, be filled with God, be full of joy. Do you see the standard that God has set for his love for you for the rest of your life? If you're wondering, how much will God love me for the rest of my life? Communion is the reminder. He who broke his body open, whose blood he gave for us, how will he not give us all things. That's the first message of communion. The second message of communion is this. Come and die. Take up your cross and follow our Lord's example. The torn bread, the poured out wine are to become the very shape of your life. Matthew 16 uh, records Jesus saying this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Communion is the physical vision statement for a Christian's soul. Like, what's the vision for my life? It's this, broken bread, poured out wine. It is the form that your life will take if you really want to live. If you've been looking for life in all kinds of places and you haven't found it, communion calls to you week after week and says, this is where real life is found, in your life taking this shape. Now, last week we spoke about the triumph of the cross, the triumph of the blood. The blood changes everything. And there was three different things that we looked at. You know, I love what Jesus says. He says, this, this cup is the new covenant. It's not this cup represents the new covenant. No, this cup is the new covenant. You're drinking the new covenant when you come and you drink this wine. You're eating the new covenant when you come and you eat the body of Christ. And so we said, you know, this changes everything for us. It changes our mood throughout all of life. The way that we go about life, the the kind of mental world that we have, the emotions that we feel are affected by the blood. They set a standard for the kind of love that we have access to for all of life. They also, uh, you know, Hebrews says, he opened up a way to intimacy through his body. His broken body, it's like the torn veil, if you know the story of the crucifixion. The veil that separated humanity from the presence of God is torn from top to bottom. So there's a new way opened up through the blood of Christ where we get a, a, a access to God. We get honesty with God. We get to be ourselves with God. You get to be yourself with God. And then the third thing we said is that this new covenant gives us access to a life of triumph. It's like one of the things that I get critiqued on all the time is why are you so triumphant in your theology? It's because of the blood. It's not because of hype or because I want to see, you know, the miraculous happen. The miraculous is secondary to the presence of God. Do you understand that? 
the reason why we pray for healing, the reason why we prophesy, the reason why we want the gifts to be at work in our community and in our, in our church gatherings is because they point. <laughs> They're signs pointing towards the one who is the real prize. So you have a life of triumph because of the blood. And today I want to look at this second message of communion. If the first message of communion is triumph, a life of victory, come and be filled with joy. I want to look at the second message of communion, which is this. It's the way of the cross. Because what I've found is that many Christians misunderstanding, misunderstand what it means to take up their cross. Many believers don't know what does it actually mean to take up your cross. Is it taking up your cross when somebody gets to the parking spot before you got there? Like, I'm just taking up my cross, I guess, today. Is it, is it taking up your cross when you receive a bad diagnosis from the doctor? Is that, well, I'm just taking up my cross. Is it taking up your cross when you don't get the job that you were after or the date doesn't want a second date? Is that taking up your cross? You know, it's curious, right? Like, what is the life shaped by the cross? Well, right after this meal, we actually get a clue in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, taking up one's cross, what we find in the garden isn't suffering, when you go through suffering, you're not taking up your cross. Or when you face trouble, you're not taking up your cross. Trouble isn't the cross. Suffering isn't the cross. See, Jesus could have avoided trouble. If you, you know, if you, any kind of skim read over the Gospels, you could kind of come to the conclusion, he could have avoided a lot of trouble. <laughs> he kind of put himself in some places. He said some things that was very triggering to you know, a Jewish audience. He could have avoided trouble. But what we find in the garden is that he couldn't avoid the cross. He could have avoided suffering, but he can't avoid the cross. And the cross comes with suffering, but the cross isn't just suffering. What I mean is this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, a different thing is happening than Jesus being sad about trouble or suffering or pain. Jesus faces the cross. He even chooses it through this very simple prayer. And you probably know this prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. Taking up your cross is not going through suffering with a good attitude. Taking up your cross is not allowing your will to be the sole guide of your life. What does it mean to take up your cross? It means I won't allow my will to be the sole determining factor of the way that my life goes. That's what it means to take up your cross. Not my will, but yours. That's the prayer of a cruciform life. See, experiencing suffering isn't taking up your cross, but it can become that if you allow the suffering to augment the role of your will. And that's what suffering can do, right? Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.1, and this is just a fascinating verse. It says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is just packed with all kinds of theology. And it's fascinating because what Peter is saying is this. Many people, maybe even some of us in this room, they struggle with sin because they haven't suffered very much. Why would that be? Does suffering redeem you? Is suffering your savior? Savior? Well, no, it's not. Jesus is your savior. Here's the key. 
What anyone, and if we could put that slide back up there, if, what anyone who has gone through any level of suffering knows is that when you suffer, you realize what really matters. You, you suddenly, your, your vision of life gets sharper. It's sharpened by pain, so much so that the things that used to attract you, the tiny luxuries of life, the lust of the flesh, the pursuit of pleasure, they no longer attract you because suffering has made you see, that won't save me. That won't actually help me. That's not gonna give me life. You realize that the things that you used to sin with when you go through suffering, they can't justify your existence. They can't save you. So what Peter is saying is since Christ suffered, his vision of life was sharpened to pursue only the will of God. There's an eter- there's a, as one pastor I love says, He's keeping eternity in mind. Eternity in mind. You can pursue the, the house that you want. You can pursue the car that you want, the spouse that you want, the career that you want. You can pursue being seen a specific way to your, peer, your peers. But at the end of the day, you're gonna die. And so do you have eternity in mind? Suffering sharpens you and goes, whoa. This is an eternal game, not just a mortal game. Right? So since Christ suffered, he pursued the will of God. Arm yourselves. I love that language. It's like, go get a sword. And and what is your sword? It's the same way of thinking that Jesus had. Pursue the will of God. What does it say? Don't live any longer for human passions, but for the will of God. what, What is the will of God? It's the character of Christ in your life. It's that you would become somebody who loves more than fears. It would be that you're the kind of person that actually has overflow coming through your life. You don't live with lack because you're afraid. You live with overflow because you're in love. That's the will of God for your life. It's the power of the Holy Spirit coming through your life. Do you have stories, testimonies where you can point to and you can say, the Holy Spirit used me there, I just know it. How else could I have known that? How else could that person have been healed? The Holy Spirit was there. How else could I have peace when it just didn't make sense at all? The Holy Spirit was there. It's, 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 it's saying with your life, I'm not gonna pursue anything but building the kingdom of heaven on earth. That is my primary pursuit, seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Suffering isn't taking up your cross, but when you, you bring your suffering to God and you say, God, I'm going through this right now, this pain, and nothing that I could add to the exterior of my life will rescue me. Only you will rescue me then you are getting yourself set up to have the same mindset, the same attitude, the same way of thinking as Christ to learn the way of the cross. And that's, that's the cruciform life. So here is my sermon. Communion's second message to us is just set aside your will and serve God's will. Easy enough. Should we just end there? <laughs> You're like, I'm trying to do that. I've been trying to do that for 30 years, you know? See, there's a problem, right? I think we all go like, yes, that's right. I want that. That's the vision of my life. But there's a problem that every human faces, and it's their glittering images. Their glittering images. I'm reading this novel right now called Glittering Images. It was written in the 1980s, and it's totally rocking my world. It's, a, it's not a theology book. It is a story. And it tells the story of this Anglican vicar who is this rising star in the 1930s within Anglicanism. He's, he's theologically a star. He's pastorally a star. And he has this spectacular moral failing. A tale as old as time, right? 
And so the book spends a good chunk of time uh, telling this story of this vicar in conversation with a spiritual advisor who is just masterful in counseling. I feel like I'm getting counseling through this novel, through this spiritual advisor. And what this spiritual advisor helps this young vicar discover is that his real problem wasn't the moral failing in his life. It's that he has gained the world but lost his soul. He has pursued everything but the kingdom. The accolades of the archbishop. The the, the admiration of the, the theology schools and the seminaries. He's pursued everything but the kingdom all because he has an image to keep up. A glittering image that he portrays to all around him to earn their approval of the man that he wants them to think that he is. And in a moment of transparency, here's what happens in a counseling session. His advisor says this. He says, you know, you have locked up your true self in order to live a lie, caring more about other people's opinions than about serving God and doing his will. You know what you should be doing with your life, but that glittering image has a stranglehold over you that you devote an enormous amount of time and energy to keep him happy. He replies, he says, yeah, that's true. It's like I'm somebody who's getting blackmailed. He says, exactly. The glittering image insists that the right people won't like and approve of you unless you give him a luxurious home right in the forefront of your life. You're so addicted to the liking and approval, you will give in to any demand that the glittering image makes. You see, this this young vicar, he has been bullied by the image. Think about it. His career choice, his connections that he's pursued, his accomplishments, the way that he's even seen physically. Throughout the book, there's all these times where they're really subtle, but he pauses and looks at himself in the mirror. Even just his attention to detail in that sense They all come because they've been demanded by the glittering image. In order to keep the glittering image up, you must do this, pursue this, make this connection, be seen this way, wear this. And here's where it all connects. Where am I going with this? Every glittering image has its own personal sacrificial system because the people who have glittering images, dare I say all of us, we don't actually believe that the blood of Jesus was enough for us. That's why we have the image. See, if someone feels unfit and unworthy, if the blood of Jesus hasn't actually filled them, if daily they're more aware of what they lack in life than how God has actually filled them up, then they will have a life of being bullied by a glittering image in its sacrificial system. The promotions and accolades, the status symbols, or having this job, or having that house in that neighborhood with this kind of income, or being seen as an intellectual or a creative, all demand that we make sacrifices to them so that we can justify our lives. At least I live here, not in that neighborhood. At least I drive this car. You know, I got a Tesla. (laughs) Not everybody has one. Uh, Hey, at least I got tenure. Or at least I'm friends with them. We use them. There's an image that we're building. And we are building it. And it comes with this sacrificial system that we make sacrifices for, profound sacrifices for. How many times have you heard of pastors who they they succeeded in pastoring in a church and they failed at home being a dad? 
There was a glittering image that they made a sacrifice at home. They sacrificed home to serve the glittering image. That one's the one that's close to my home, right? See, because I feel poorly about myself, because I feel fear and, and lack, I then do all that I do as a way of making my life appear a little more weighty and substantial than perhaps it actually is. Think of, think of Lady Justice and her scales. With a glittering image and building this thing, sacrificing to this image, what you're constantly trying to do is convince the jury that your life is a little bit more weighty than other people's lives, that you're a little bit of more value than just the average pressing down on the scales, saying, well, at least I'm this. But what communion tells us, what this table tells us, is that you won't get filled with your, you won't, you won't, your glittering image won't fill you. It will only demand of you. And so when you come to the table, you're not gonna just get filled at this table. You're gonna get so filled that there will become a call on your life to pour yourself out like Jesus. That's how filled you're gonna get. The table stares at you who feel lack, stares you in the face and says, come eat and drink and also die. <laughs> because then you're gonna really live. And that death, that death is not to the part of you that's really you, that death is to the glittering image. And when you put that glittering image to death, you're going to get a Jesus mind. You're going to get a Jesus mind. You're going to trade your glittering image for a Jesus mind. Notice what Peter says here in 1 Peter 4, 1 again. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Everybody say attitude. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. Now, it's interesting to me because that's almost the same exact language that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind. Everybody say mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now listen for both of these passages, listen for the echoes within Romans chapter 12. Here's what Paul says. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, think of the table, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right after Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, he says, be a living sacrifice. How are you gonna do it? By the renewing of your mind. And then what follows in the chapter is an entire section on how to treat one another with honor and care within the body of Christ. A whole section on how do you honor the people that are different than you or that worship different than you or think different than you? How do you love them and, and, and believe the best about them and serve them? That's what follows. Why is it that that's what follows? Because the Jesus mind, when you get a Jesus mind, you stop building your personal project and your glittering image and you don't allow it to bully you any longer or to create a sacrificial system for a person who God already sacrificed for. You don't need to sacrifice for the image anymore. You've already been sacrificed for. And so a Jesus mind reveals its fullness by its service. 
your ability to go low will reveal what you have taken in. Your ability to go low and to serve anyone, to do any job, will reveal what you've taken in. You know, when we planted the church, um, we had a lot of decisions to be made, but maybe the most important decision to be made about a church plant was this. What do we lead with? What do we lead with? What do we say? What do we, what do we bring? What do we lead with? And uh, what, what we realized early on is that if it was discipleship and discipline, good things, stuff to do in the kingdom, then we would run the risk of building an entire church on what people lack. We need, there's more to be done. There's more to be done in you. There's constantly more to be done. And legalism would set in in our culture. But if, our, if we led with, if our leading message was come, gaze, soak. I remember there was this, this gentleman who, uh, he, he came and he wanted to serve. He had all these ideas. He wanted to do all these things. And uh, we said, you need to sit in a pew for a year and just soak it up because you are so dry that if we put you into any place of serving, you would do it as a way to promote your glittering image. And we just can't do that. We can't run the risk. We can't have you here uh, promoting your glittering image through the good things of the, of the kingdom. We just can't do that. I, there, was a, there was an image that I heard recently, and I just said, that's so our church. Uh, this gal was talking about an experience that she had in her life, and she said, you know, for a, for a couple years, she went to this church. She was sharing her testimony. A couple years, she goes to this church, and um, she's like, I want to, she had a really great voice. She's like, I want to be on the worship team, and the Lord's like, nope. She's like, I really want to do it, and the Lord's like, nope. And so for two years, she just waited, nothing. And the Lord gave her this image. She, every time she'd walk into the sanctuary, the Lord said, you are this dry twig, and, I, and, and this church is this cup of oil, and I'm going to dip you in this cup of oil. And for two years, she didn't serve, she didn't do anything, the Lord just kept dipping her in the oil, and she kept saying, but why? I, yeah, you dipped me in oil, and he said, you were just that dry that you needed this. You were just that empty that you needed to be filled. If we started there, come gaze, come and behold him. Look at the beauty. Then God's goodness would become the motivation for any service and any sacrifice. And I would, dare I say, I would say that this is how Jesus served as well. John 13, a very familiar passage for most of us. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's interesting that John doesn't record the Last Supper. In the book of John, you don't get a recording of the Last Supper, of him breaking the bread and the wine and all of that. But we're told that this moment this foot-washing ceremony happens at the same meal. And so do you see it? The dual command, even within the Gospels, come, eat and drink Jesus. 
and then serve and love to the end. You will reveal what you've taken in by how low you can go. This is the Jesus mind. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. And what I want you to simply see is this. Jesus, it says, knowing where he was from. He's from God. He's returning to God. Knowing who he has connection to. God has given him, what does it say? Let's read it again. Uh, The father had put all things under his power that he had come from God and was returning to God. Then he gets up and serves. Because Jesus knew who he was, he was then able to go low and serve anyone, even Judas. Notice Judas is there. A living sacrifice is a living sacrifice. Many people think, hey, I'm just here to be, at, I'm here at the church, I'm here to serve, I'm here to be a living sacrifice. And they're not living. They just, they've redefined living sacrifice to just sacrifice. They think it means to be a doormat or just to serve or just to whatever. no. That's not what we see with Jesus. You are invited to have a Jesus mind, meaning you're invited to know who you are, how loved you are, to such a degree that then you are able to do anything that would build God's project instead of your glittering image. Because you're so full. You're so full, you're able to pour out. You see, Jesus doesn't demand things of you that are not possible. He doesn't say, be a living sacrifice, and you're like, I'm trying. If you're trying... You've missed the first step. You need to be filled. He doesn't ask you to pour things out in your life that he hasn't given you. You know, I think uh, early on as a believer, I really had, I I was so zealous. I had this zeal about me. I would tell everybody about Jesus. I had no tact. (laughs) I was like, I don't care where I am. You need to know about Jesus. And uh, I saw very little fruit. Um, But you know, one of the things that I, I began, became attention in my life was what began with such a sense of God's love in my life, such a sense of him pouring himself out in me. Eventually, it began to wane. It began to kind of like, I, I began to just notice the lack that I had. I went through difficulty, I went through trials, and, and I began to just kind of live with a sense of uh, there's not enough. And I was full of shame over it. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I was full of shame over it. Like, I should be more loving. I should be more serving. I should be more caring. What's wrong with me? I'm a Christian. And I remember those days, and so, you know, of, of great fullness. And so you know what I would do? Probably what many of you would do, I would try harder. <laughs> I would just try harder. I'm gonna love, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna think the best, you know, I'd slap myself on the wrist. No, don't do that. Don't, don't fall back into the old patterns of, of, of lust and addiction. Don't do that. No, come on. You're, you're to love the Lord. And what I learned, it took about six, seven years. What I learned is that God does not require us to pour ourselves out when we're empty. He says to those of us who are empty, come and be filled. Come and be filled. If I find in myself that I'm not loving, if I find in myself that I'm not, I don't have the, the Jesus mind, then my conclusion shouldn't be there's something wrong with me. My conclusion should be I need to go get loved again. What father, what father w- would see their child coming to them and saying, Daddy, play with me. Daddy, love me. Will you just love me? And get upset over that. Who is getting upset over that? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your heavenly father? There's a standard of fatherhood out of love. 
And it's what every single believer has access to. Come be filled so that you can be a living sacrifice. And this is why, and here's where I want to end, this is why the enjoyment of God is the answer to a glittering image in your own personal sacrificial system. It's the enjoyment of him. Like, why do we worship so long? (laughs) We're enjoying him. Why are we making more time for communion? We should be singing longer. We're enjoying him. And there's many different ways to enjoy the presence of God. We're enjoying him because it is beauty that is the gatekeeper to all things that are good and true. So come and gaze, come and behold. This is a feast that calls, come be filled so that you can be poured out. So Saints Hill Church, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices by the renewing of your mind. Let's stand. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.